Welcome to 10.5, the official podcast of the OPP Association. I am Scott Mills. And I'm Josh Jutras. We are the Strategic Communications Coordinators for the OPP Association and your host for the 10.5 podcast, the official podcast of the OPP Association. The OPP Association is the sole bargaining agent for the close to 10,000 members of the Ontario Provincial Police in Ontario, Canada. Our members are our focus and our strength, and we aim to provide important information to our members and the public about matters that affect policing in the province of Ontario. And today uh, we are very fortunate to have as our guests uh, OPP Sergeant Anne McEwen and Provincial Constable Jason Sobskowicz. And I probably just said your name wrong there, Jason. Um, That's all good. Everybody does. (laughs) Both from the Rainy River District in what the OPP calls the Northwest region of the province of Ontario. And uh, we're going to have a discussion about their policing careers and their personal journeys living with PTSD. And uh, we're very happy to welcome Anne and Jason. Thank you. Very Very happy to be here. I'm grateful. Both of you, thanks for doing this. And uh, I just want to start with uh, Geography 101. And if you don't mind, uh, I don't think when we're saying Rainy River, we're talking about the parking lot here at the association today. It's been raining cats and dogs. Uh, where exactly in the world are you in the Rainy River District? Well, we are located, um, Jay and I are situated geographically in the town of Fort Francis. So we're located on the very northwest south side of the province so if you flip the Ontario map over and you go towards the um, Manitoba border we are along the Manitoba border as well as the Minnesota border so if we cross the Rainy River uh, by vehicle International Falls Minnesota is on the opposite side of where it's a sister city to Fort Francis so that's where we are we're four-hour drive time from Thunder Bay and we're two hour, two and a half hours south of Kenora. Well, it's, uh, I'm glad you put that in context. That's that's a long way from where we're sitting here today. And I know I'm sitting in Burlington, and uh, Josh is up in Barrie. And uh, it just goes to show what a vast province and how much area is actually covered uh, out there in, uh, in Ontario by our, our Ontario Provincial Police Officers. So. Just a little bit of context for uh, how we got talking here with Ann and Jason. Uh, I was asked by our former president, Rob Stinson, to to reach out to Ann to talk about the 100th anniversary of the Nipigon Detachment uh, on a podcast. And uh, we never really connected on that one. Um, And apparently it was a really good event from what Ann has said. That was all kind of during the COVID period. Are we on? Are we off? uh, All that type of stuff. So... During this time, uh, Anne and I have had uh, a number of discussions uh, back and forth on different possible topics for the podcast, and uh, we've fallen on this one to start, and uh, we may be hearing more from Anne and Jason about all the good work that, that they are doing, and, and a lot of the other uh, uh, members of the OPP Association up north are doing in the, in the future, but we're we're happy that we finally moved on to the recording stage here today, and uh, Ann and Jason have decided that they would like to share their career journeys uh, on the podcast to start off with. So uh, I'm going to throw this over to Jason. Uh, start with you, Jason. Can you tell us just a, a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. So uh, like Ann said, we live in Fort Francis, which is uh, 
it's about a 22 hour drive from where you guys are if the weather is good um i've lived here my entire life and when i first got into policing in about 2003 as an auxiliary and a cadet i did have aspirations of you know moving somewhere else in the province but there was a position available in my hometown and in 2006 when i was uh, finally hired as a constable this was where i landed so I've been here for almost 19 years uh, working within the OPP and I plan to finish the rest of my career here. I've got a farm and three children and we are outdoor enthusiasts and we've got everything right here in this tiny little community to serve all of our needs. So I, uh, I guess I feel blessed in a way because some people are afraid of their hometown, but I found that it had far more benefits than cost. So yeah, that's me in a nutshell. And I'll give you a second here to uh, introduce yourself. And I forgot to get the name of your dog when we were uh, just before we hit the record <laughs> button there as well. Oh, that's Ozzy. Yeah, he's a three-year-old multipoo. And nice. We were we were chuckling in the in getting ready for this because he's on guard because there's an, a stranger in the home. But when he was a six-month-old puppy, I had one of uh, my clients from work wait for me outside in my yard and. Um, it scared both of us, obviously, but now he's ever since he's been my protector. So I, I appreciate it. if anyone can hear him barking, he's, he's on full alert. My name is Anne McEwen and I am a sergeant and I was born and raised in Thunder Bay, Ontario. And um, my first posting came right after uh, my stint in university at Lakehead U. I went into uh, policing with the OPP in 1993 and my badge is 8174. I was stationed in Nipigon as my first attachment, and I loved every minute of it. I had a fabulous uh, working team, working relationship with uh, members of that detachment, and I was so proud to be a part of the 100th anniversary to celebrate uh, that detachment area. And I went back and worked with uh, Constable uh, Brian Perala and uh, Inspector Deb Roy, and we all started in Nipigon together, and we uh, we worked through COVID to make it happen. So it, we had a few hundred people come out for a golf tournament and a social where we celebrated. We had pipes come in, and we had uh, all the detachment commanders from, that ever served in Nipigon come to that event. We had members from afar, both retired and otherwise. But it was it was beautiful to celebrate it, and the community was so welcoming to have us back. It was just like time had not even 25 years hadn't even occurred in some respects so it was great to see people so i started there and then in 98 uh, my spouse and i decided to move to fort francis because his family is from this area and we wanted to have children and we since have had two beautiful daughters and they are both working their way towards uh, a career in emergency services my eldest wants to be a paramedic and my youngest is in, is 16 she has a couple of years left of high school and she wants to be a conservation officer but I've been in, in, been in Fort Francis and placing the Rainier River District ever since, and I was promoted here. I went uh, from frontline constable, where I did a lot of, um, I answered calls, um, like every frontline officer does, but I did a lot of proactive, I did a lot of community service work. I moved into media, I coordinated the media for region for a little bit. And I moved, when I was promoted, I moved into a position that managed uh, a federal contribution agreement called Project Sunset. And you may have heard of it or you may not have, 
but there, it was a sister project to Project Journey, which was up in Pekanjikum, uh, which is about two hours north of Kenora. And it's a remote First Nation community. And it, the, the projects were followed a proven evaluated framework that was designed to build protective factors in youth. And it was designed by the National Indian Youth Leadership Project out of Albuquerque, New Mexico. And I was so happy and excited to work on such a beautiful entity that actually worked. <laughs> and it was proven to work, but uh, it not only changed behavior, but it changed personality. And that was recognized by Lakehead University Sociology Department. And so when you talk about evaluated or proven models of improving well-being, that was it. And it did it. And so I, I, saw, I saw a beautiful thing occur within a policing entity that never had occurred before in Canada. And so it was innovative and required change. And I got to know a lot of fantastic, innovative, thought-provoking people that wanted to make change in their community, not only for public safety, but for well-being and how to handle crisis. I learned about the importance of culture, music and arts and athletics and outdoor experiential learning in order to build on people's assets, developmental assets for healthy living. And then um, it came to an abrupt halt in, uh, at the end of the project, the end of the five years. And I was uh, directed to go back to Frontline, and I did. I went working the project and 13 years of proactive policing straight into Frontline again, and I had to relearn everything. And I went back to uh, being a sergeant on a platoon in Fort Francis, and that's where I'm at right now is back to responding to calls. And last October, I was diagnosed with uh, post-traumatic stress disorder major depression, anxiety, and um, there's reasons for it that I'm sure that we'll get into, but that is my journey. And I have, when I went into the depths of PTSD, I suddenly realized how gruesome and horrible and hard and uh, burdensome that journey is. But walking through the fire has really been a beautiful journey, actually. It's brought me back closer to wholesomeness again. And um, I'm optimistic and I'm hopeful for the future. And now I've, I'm at a point where I'm starting to speak about it. So I can uh, pay forward some of the gems of wisdom that I've come to learn. That's why we're here. Thanks a lot, uh, Anne. Um, we're going to get to Jason in, in a minute. But when we were preparing for this podcast, I asked you for a few uh, talking points here. And you, you know, you've uh, you've talked about the PTSD diagnosis and major depression disorder um, and the anxiety. And um, I think it's a good segue to maybe get into some of those talking points that you uh, you wanted to talk about. Like, like how, how did this how did this happen? Um, feel free to share any of what what we've talked about here, um, you know, as much or as little as you want. It's just uh I, we we really feel that that when people want to share like like you've said you want to that it's it's very beneficial uh, for for others that are struggling in the same way. Yeah, it takes a lot of courage to come forward and speak. Um, obviously, like 
I know that a lot of officers and our members will be talking or listening to this podcast. And, you know, we always say you're not alone and you're definitely not. However, there is stigma that's out there and there is where we work in a paramilitary organization, right, with rank and structure. And if you experience what you experience out on the road, it's not when you're going to become injured. It's a matter of when, right? Like it's, it's, um, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. It's going to happen. You cannot go to dozen or more sudden deaths or car crashes or domestic violence or sexual assaults, aggravated assaults, all those sort of things over 30 years and not become impacted by it. So, you know, without getting into the depths of it, because really those stories aren't mine to tell. There, I was living them vicariously through the trauma of others. And I always would justify it that I was called to this occupation for a reason. And that is because I have a passion to help people. Um, I like to think that I am emotionally intelligent and um, I'm aware, but I'm also very, I'm empathetic and I'm compassionate to people who are facing traumas in their life. And so going to these calls, although, you know, we know, we know, we need to investigate and we need to document and we need to articulate in our reports very fine details of these events but we also have the emotional side of things so you know we're dealing with victims and we're dealing with witnesses um, and these sort of things are also traumatizing um, to not only the people that are experiencing the trauma but the police officers or the medics or the fire or um, you know, members of the coroner's office or anybody that has to attend these, these uh, types of instances. But what I've also learned is there's energy that is at these scenes. It's often chaotic and we are energy bodies. So we absorb not only what we see, um, smell, taste, sound here or here, we absorb energy as well. And that is something that, you know, we don't have any control of that. So in recognizing that it was, you know, all those layers of kind of like layers of an onion, like every call that we go to over the year, no kidding, they're going to build up and build up. And I had, I had, I had specific incidents that were troubling to me over the years, but it was also in addition to the toxic workplace environment it got to a point where I felt safer handling the calls out on the road than I did coming back to detachment because, you know, there's, I always think like hurt people, hurt people. They don't, sometimes there's, they're unconscious as to how they're reacting or responding to situations that are going in the detachment. However, we have a very high level of accountability and rightfully so. But when we have, um, oversight that is straight to punitive or oversight that doesn't offer empathy or compassion or um, just an, a willingness to see or to understand the bigger picture, then when quality of work starts to go down because people are feeling unwell, the first response often is a punitive one. And that's what I was starting to face when my quality of work started to go because my symptoms were starting to appear and I wasn't cognizant of it. I wasn't aware of it. I would get brain fog. 
lack of concentration. I wasn't sleeping. So if I wasn't sleeping, I wasn't repairing. I wasn't healing. Um, I could, I, my anxiety was building and building my hypervigilance and my suspicion of everybody around me. Like if I couldn't do the job right, who was going to get me? Like who was going to write me up or who was going to hold me accountable? And I was working so hard and it got to a point where I would, I literally would ask for help. And it was almost like I was responded to with a blank stare. And so there wasn't help. There wasn't uh, additional resources added so that I could manage better. But I also have been trained for 30 years to never surrender and never give up. So despite not knowing and understanding these symptoms that I was facing, I knew that I knew that things were going on. I knew cognitively I wasn't able to process the same as I was. And I, I literally wrote it off to menopause. I wrote it off to getting older because I'm 52. And I'm thinking, oh, maybe this is just part of life, right? <laughs> like, I don't know any different. And so it wasn't until the anxiety got so bad that my panic attacks would happen for three or four days in a row. And then I'd stop eating. And then I lost weight and I'm, you know, I'm not afraid to tell people I'm usually about a buck 55, buck 60. And I was down to 125 pounds. My skin was gray. My eyes were gray. My, my cheeks were gaunt. Like I was, my body was shutting down. My body was saying no, no more. And I was just trying to work harder and harder and harder trying to fix things. And then um, I eventually did speak up. I spoke up um, in, it was 2019, when I was feeling the heat from my organization to do more and I couldn't. And they were starting to, I felt like they were starting to come after me because there was indicators that they were. And people were starting to come to me in confidence to say, hey, just watch your back here. I think they're coming for you. And so I finally spoke up. And when I spoke up, um, I, my tone was perceived <laughs> as not appropriate. And I was told that by um, professional standards. And I'd, um, I, w I ended up getting charged with insubordination because I brought my complaint forward. And that devastated me because this whole, this whole situation, I was turning into something. I felt like I was turning into something that I wasn't. And all I was doing was trying to work so hard. But at the same time, the work didn't realize that my marriage was going under. They didn't realize that I was now going to a doctor because I had found a lump in my breast, that I had found a lump in my kidney. My whole world, my body, my mind, my family, my my family life, my work life was all disintegrating all at the same time and I couldn't do a thing to, to stop it. And so when, the, when I reached my last straw to say, help me and stop, stop hurting me, that's when I ended up saying, I, like when I found the lump, I ended up leaving work and I said, I can't do this anymore. And I had to ask for help. And that's when I was able to, I was introduced through another colleague that had been to Dr. Paul Johnson at Thunder Bay Psychology. And I, you know, I adore this man. He's literally saved my life because he taught me so many things. But that was my, that was my turning point. But Dr. Johnston told me to go to yoga. 
Mm. And I laugh at that. But it wasn't, it wasn't, he's telling me to go to yoga because I fought him on that. I literally quit. But when I reached rock bottom and I eventually went, I learned that that is where I need to be because it made me feel safe for the first time. And to learn the yogic principles of life, that, that was like, okay, now I know what he wants me to do. So I know that we always say, you know, ask for help. But the part two of that is to accept the help because we don't surrender ever. And sometimes when we're sick and we can't do it alone, we have to accept the help from the people, right? That are experts in helping in these circumstances. And that's exact. that was my biggest, my biggest lesson was accept the help Anne. you can't fix this on your own. You're sick. And I had to accept that. And uh, thank you for that. Uh, Jason, I'm going to uh, turn it over to you to get uh, your perspective on what this journey has been like for you and to uh, take that wherever you'd like to go with that. Yeah, thank you. Uh, and that was wonderful. I think you you have such a way of delivering the truth. So uh, I'm grateful for that. And thank you. I'm not sure how I uh, follow this one up. <laughs> um, I'd, I'd actually like to start um, by... Uh, a quote from a gentleman in Canada. Um, his name is Dr. Gabor Mate, and he specializes in trauma. And uh, I just think this quote really sums up uh, what trauma is and how it affects us. And then from there, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll go into my own journey. But uh, Dr. Gabor Mate, I think he's based out of BC. He's been dealing in trauma for uh, many decades now. And he uh, describes it as trauma is a psychic wound that hardens you psychologically that then interferes with your ability to grow and develop. It pains you and now you're acting out of pain. It induces fear and now you're acting out of fear. Trauma is not what happens to you. It's what happens inside you as a result of what happened to you. Trauma is the scarring that makes you less flexible, more rigid, less feeling and more defended. So I, I guess I can say that uh, the beginning of my, uh, my PTSD journey, um, there was a specific uh, single incident. And without going into all of the gory details, there's a particular person in Port Francis. He's known to assault police. We had a dealing with him one night. He was bleeding from the face and the mouth. And just as I locked the door to the holding cell, he spit a bloody loogie onto my face and it got in my eyes and my mouth. And he was positive for hep C and being tested for HIV. So I had to go through the, uh, through the AIDS cocktail process. And I know that that's not a technical term, but uh, if anybody's ever experienced that, you know what kind of hell that is. So I was off work. Um, after that incident for about a month, taking these uh, horrific pills that basically kill your entire immune system. You get very, very sick, but it flushes you and doesn't allow hep C or the HIV virus to take hold. And when I look back on it now, I was angry, but I didn't feel traumatized at first. I just, of course, I was mad at the person for what he did to me. Um, but he paid his dues in court and I didn't hold a grudge. And I went back to work as soon as I was better. And everything seemed okay. But 
I recognized that there was something going on when I had my first panic attack and then the nightmares began. And, you know, of course I said nothing. And I'll, I'll, I think the reason why I didn't say anything was because when you're a police officer, you're immersed in a specific culture. It's not the culture of society. It's not the culture of the region you live in. It's a, it's a police culture. And that police culture says that you're a police officer and Anne said it perfectly. You never surrender. You never give up. You always go to work. You have a duty. You have a job. You serve. You protect. And I think you, we all end up putting ourselves in harm's way um, in order to do that job effectively. So there was an immense pressure on me. Uh, well, I perceived that there was an immense pressure on me to not say anything. When you're sitting around in the constable's office and you've listened to the way that we speak to each other behind our backs, you know that the moment you open your mouth and say that you're mentally unwell, that you're going to be that person. You're going to be the next victim of the group of people sitting around in the constable's room, throwing out pejoratives and gaslighting people behind their backs and talking down about them because they're unwell. And you know what? I am guilty of doing this. I'm not saying that I'm not sitting here on some pedestal virtue signaling. I, I was an asshole. I, I fell lock, lockstep into that poisonous uh, part of our culture where I would, um, uh, I would utter something under my breath when I heard a person was off sick for mental health problems. And all the while, I knew I was unwell. And for almost six years, I buried and repressed all of the signals that my body and my mind were saying to me, like, there's something really wrong here, Jay, and you need to deal with this. Um, the nightmares were spiraling out of control. The panic attacks hospitalized me on multiple occasions. Um, in fact, on one occurrence, I actually drove my police cruiser right up the ramp into the emergency room because I didn't know what was going on. I thought I was having a heart attack. And I guess what finally broke me was um, I saw my... I saw my marriage falling. Sorry. I saw my marriage falling apart. And I saw my children... I saw my children not having the father that they needed. I had, uh, I had turned to alcohol and over-the-counter uh, prescription, non-prescription medication to try and numb myself from this overpowering anguish. And um, I guess I hit rock bottom, and that's when I finally uh, went to my doctor. And, and I went to my doctor on six or seven occasions to try and say the words I need help, but I just couldn't. And every time I went to him, I would just say, ah, you know what? I'm not sleeping well. Um, can I get something for sleep? It's the shift work. You know, there's a lot of stress. And, and finally I had to write a letter. I wrote a five page letter to my doctor and I handed it to him. And when he diagnosed me, and said I needed to uh, get some professional help. There was this massive weight off of my chest finally, like I finally admitted it. But then at the same time, there was a new burden. And the new burden was that I had, uh, I had exposed myself to this toxic workplace. And I knew because I was part of it. 
I knew because I, I was complicit in it. I participated in the demoralization and the belittlement of people behind their backs. So I was very well versed and I understood, I understood 100% that I was going to be the next victim and I was going to be the next outcast. And lo and behold, it's exactly what happened, but I had no choice. And I, I, I'm not looking back and I am not blaming anybody. I am simply stating that this is where we are. And reaching for help, I think, is the most difficult process because not only are you battling the idea that as police officers we're impermeable, that we have this Superman outfit on and that we are the ones who help. We're not the ones who need help. And so when you have to reach your hand out across the aisle and say, please pick me up, please do something about this for me, I need somebody, it feels like you're taking that strength away from you. And, and you fear the judgment of your peers you fear the judgment of society, of your friends and family. And uh, I can tell you now, after looking back on it, that a lot of that is, is just in your head. A lot of, like what Anne said, the support really is out there. But we all perceive in our own minds that everybody's going to judge us and think that we're damaged goods and that we're broken. Um, so my journey has brought me to a place where I'm finally comfortable speaking out. I have discovered many things about myself, many toxic traits about myself that I've had to let go of. And in fact, I've had to completely change who I am in order to divorce myself from how PTSD threaded its way through the very fiber of who I am. And it's a long, hard process. And that's another one of the difficulties is that there's a comfort in just remaining who you are. And it's a massive challenge to go and flip that over and change in order so you can heal and move forward. And admitting to yourself that you need help is uh, one of the biggest steps. And I, I could go on and on. Um, we could do this for hours because there's just so much information about PTSD and how difficult it is. But that's about where I am now is I'm in a healing process. I see Dr. Paul Johnston, uh, the same psychologist that uh, Anne mentioned. He is an absolute miracle worker. He has really dedicated himself to uh, assisting those of us with these uh, severe uh, mental health anguishes. And it, it, it's one of the big steps that anybody who's in this position needs to take is seeking that professional help. And I think I'll end right there so that we can uh, move on to some other points. Thank you uh, very much, Jason, for, for your candid uh sharing of, of your journey. I, it, it's definitely going to help people. And uh, thank you, Anne, for eloquently sharing your journal as well. It's uh, just phenomenal that uh, that you're sharing this. And I'm sure when this podcast uh, is actually released, that your phones are going to blow up with a whole bunch of people supporting you. Uh, that's been our experience in the past. It's been my personal experience in my own journey. And uh, I tell you, it feels good when you know you've finally lifted the the, the lid off of it all. So th thanks so much for sharing this. It's uh, it's not easy to do, uh, especially in a public forum. But for those who do choose to to share, uh, it most definitely helps others, and it, it resonates in ways that we never know. Uh, you, you'll be making a difference for a long time for what you've done here today. So thank you for that. I'm going to pose a question to Anne first and then over to Jason. 
I mean, we've been doing this for a while, Scott and I were, you know, episode 80 just released this week. And from time to time, we come to this theme of mental health. And it's the same, it's the same stuff we're seeing from SDNG to Essex, all the way up to Fort Francis is the culture conversation. How, how do we move the needle on this conversation? What, is there even an answer? And I'll start with you. What, what do we have to have happen here? to make this better well that's a that's a that's a huge question yeah unto unto like everybody's different right every and i've worked in the fort francis uh area for 25 years um i've known known jay since he got on and you know like i think the important thing to remember is what works for me doesn't necessarily work for you Right. So what I what I need to be aware of is I need to stay present in the moment with me. I've tried to fix my marriage. It didn't work. I tried to fix the OPP. It didn't work. I only ended up losing myself in the process. And I know that Jay and I do want to talk a little bit about the egoic mind. Um, often Jay and I will read the same literature. Uh, I love Jay's podcast or I love Jay's uh, Instagram posts. Um, They inspire me. But my healing process is completely different to what Jay's process. There's similarities, but there's differences. And, you know, when I look at something like the culture, the culture is not something I have control of nor do I want to have that. But what I can do is I can say like, this is what's worked for me. So if you don't, if you will allow me to, there's a couple of things that I want to share with the listeners that helped me begin my journey and why. And again, it worked for me. I spoke about my yoga and my yoga, um, you know, it impressed upon the importance of working in yoga isn't a workout i've i thought it was some fancy schmancy (laughs) exercise (laughs) routine or whatever right i i i knew of it but i didn't know of it so when dr i call him dr j and uh, i think j does too but anyway when dr j says Anne, have you ever considered yoga and then i got so freaking mad that i was like i'm paying you to fix me like you're supposed to be the expert. I don't want to do, I'm not, I'm done doing all the work. I'm done working my butt off, <laughs> you know, 80 hours a day or 80 hours a week and not getting paid for more than 40. I am, I'm done trying to fix marriages. I'm done trying to be full-time worker, mom, spouse, whatever. So I had to look, look inwards. I can't fix out, I can only fix in. So my yoga, um, we think of it as postures, right? The asana, as we call it. But what that taught me is there's different types of movement in your body, for your body. And so the major depression, the PTSD, we all hear of depression makes you ache. It makes your body sore. It makes your joints sore. It makes your muscles stiff. And that's energy. It's low vibrational energy. So if I go to yoga, they taught me how to raise that energy level. 
It's the same thing with anxiety. Anxiety is high vibrational energy. So when I went to yoga, they taught me how to move my body in a more somatic, stretch, very static, one posture at a time, opposed to a flow yoga, which is moving more quickly, right? So that there is, there's balances available to us depending on what our anxiety or what our energy level is. And so what that did is it helped attach my head to my body. I'd been walking through life in a trance, basically. I was, I was just going with the flow. Get up in the morning, five, six o'clock in the morning, get the kids ready for school, get them off to school, get to work, run around like a chicken with my head cut off at work, get out of work, run to hockey. I was, you know, I'm super mom, I'm gonna do it all. But my head wasn't attached to my body. I could, didn't even know or recognize what my body sensations were. I remember the first time that I went to yoga and we did a breath work workshop. It was a, it was a mantra meditation. And the, the breath, I was high anxiety at the time. So high, high level anxiety, high energy, nervous, anxious, tense. And there's things that contribute to tension, right? So when I started to move my body in a way and I started to learn how to breathe at the age of 48 for the first time, for the first time I unlocked my core where I had been holding all of my tension. You know, I'm trying to sleep tense. I'm trying to live tense. I didn't even realize my body was tense until I did this breathing exercise with the instructor and it unlocked. And I literally felt a release that I hadn't felt for years. It made me cry actually, because I, was, I just suddenly woke up to how much tension was in what I was holding in my body. So the yoga not only taught me the yogic principles, but it taught me how to breathe. It also taught me to single focus because when you have PTSD and anxiety or depression, right? You're on the hamster wheel, your brain's going a mile a minute and you're having multiple thoughts. And like Jay said, I was having nightmares. I'm having flashbacks. I'm not able to single focus. I, I couldn't even work at work. I was like, I would stay after hours when everybody would go home just so I could have quiet so that I could focus on getting my computer work done as my emails piled and piled and piled and piled. I was, I couldn't, I couldn't slow that hamster wheel down. So the breath work and the meditation work taught me how to, I can have multiple thoughts, but I only have one at a time. And so the, the principles of yoga really helped me to do that. And it helped, the breathing helped me get out of that sympathetic to parasympathetic. So it took me from sympathetic, which my nervous system is on override. It's like opening a fire hydrant, right? You're cranking open the side of the fire hydrant and the, the bullet breaks, boom, all of this water comes gushing out. Well, that's me. That is me in a nutshell with my adrenaline and my hypervigilance and my anxiety out of control. I had to fix that bolt in order to stop the flow. And so the breath work takes me, if I can slow my breath, if I learned about nasal breathing, and Jay gave me a beautiful book, Breath by James Nestor. So it tells you, it talks to you about the science of breath. 
the science of breath is if we can slow our breath down and take it from our, the top of our lungs or our throat and put it into our belly and s expand our diaphragm and use our core to ex our breath to expand our core you're actually not only deepening your breath but you're taking your sympathetic and moving it into the parasympathetic which oppresses the anxiety while it raises the relaxation you can't have both at the same time right so it taught me the importance of breath work with mental health and i didn't get that in any of my training in any time with the opp nothing and so understanding the principles and the science of it helped me to counter what i was feeling physically because of what of my what my mind was telling me and so when you go to single thought when you introduce breath when you can balance your nervous system for the first time you can begin to see where what things are happening around you like jay said you know you start to see when you're traumatized you start to see things through your anger through your trauma so the breath work and the meditation and releasing the energy from my body that's negative to put positive energy in it what it helped me do was actually see things as they were not from how i am and that was important because then it was i was seeing then truth i wasn't seeing the story that my mind my injured brain was telling me i was seeing you know and so when we talk about the importance of taking care of yourself physically it's adding those components to it and i love fitness but i always was like 100 miles an hour like hey let's go run a half marathon for the fun of it no that's not what i needed and it's not and now i've enjoyed it so much i'm now a yoga instructor so i'm beginning to pay forward anyway so that's what i wanted to talk about with the yoga and um, some of the lessons there and i could talk for a whole segment on yoga well for sure i mean and and to a point you raised earlier about learning how to breathe i just learned really how to breathe earlier this year just before my 40 uh, 43rd birthday mm -hmm. and man i wish i had that information been equipped with that information 20 years ago 30 years ago and right. the impact of breath on the vagus nerve and how how just it was just mind. It was just life altering, honestly. And Jason, I want to bring you into the conversation here because it sounds like you're uh, in a similar uh, of a similar thought and just the impact of what Anne was saying on on how on your journey on how you deal with your PTSD. Yeah, I, I do believe that we were um, we kind of you were asking us to hint on uh, culture in the workplace as well. Yep. Yeah. So Anne's right on the money, and so are you, Josh. You know that. Um, People don't recognize or understand, and the science is out there now, that um, the way that we breathe is so important. And you, you, you touched on the vagus nerve. This is a little known thing, but you can really express and change your vagal tone just by breathing. And um, there are very simple techniques that I think every officer should know on how to calm down after a high-stress incident. Yeah. And, of course, you know, this used to be pseudoscience. Now it's hardened you know, peer-reviewed, journaled, accredited information that's out there. And the, the, the book she's talking about, the, this is a book title called Breath, um, it's, it's just incredible. It really opened me up to understanding that that's one part of being a, a better person and being more healthy. 
So I, I, I think I'll uh, go a little bit different route than Anne, and I'd like to just touch on what, what the culture in, in policing does for people. And of course, I'm only one person. I'm only my own experience and my own perception, but I've spoken to many people, and I do believe that uh, this is true for most areas. I want to state right now that I'm not going to blame anybody. I'm not going to point the finger at any single person because this is a cultural, and I, I've generalized the word cultural. I mean that like as the Western society. We have this toxicity and this fear of mental health problems, mental health illness, mental health disease, emotional trauma, whatever you'd like to label it as. Everybody's afraid of it and everybody's afraid to talk about it and we're afraid to talk with each other about it. And what that does is it translates to the local work workforce and the culture in that workforce feeds on that. And, you know, we, uh, we hear this term alpha personality all the time, especially in the workforce that, you know, that police, police forces look for alpha people, alpha male, alpha female. So I went to uh, Dr. Jordan Peterson. Everybody knows who he is. And I wrote down a whole bunch of points about what, what a true alpha is based on based on a lot of literature over many decades and and there's a couple of types of true alpha there there is like the billionaire never stops working relentless pursuit of a goal foregoes everything else in their life in order to achieve something at a really high level that's that's one that's one form of being an alpha type but within the policing community we're not billionaires and we work and then we go home at the end of our workday but we're all told that we're these alpha people. So what does, what does it mean to be an alpha? It means mutual re reciprocity. It means being trustworthy. It means having friendships and, and, and really fostering those. It means not having enemies. It means altruism, being concerned for others and their happiness. It means having compassion and empathy. It means having strength with grace. It means being a great leader. It means holding the golden rule to a, it, its utmost pinnacle. It means being smart and disciplined. But in the toxic workplace of the police world, and everybody knows this, we can all agree on this. That's not what it is. The alpha person in the policing community is like a gorilla beating its chest with a uniform on. Like, look at me. Look at how powerful I am. And F you and F you, and I don't care about society, and I'm jaded, and that snowballs. And what that does is it snowballs, and it captures those of us that aren't part of that. And Anne and I were having a conversation in preparation for this where she brought up a really good analogy, and I, I don't want to steal Anne's thunder, but I'm going to say it because she hasn't yet. You put a frog in a pot of water, and you put the water on the stove, the frog will boil alive because the frog has no way of knowing that he's boiling alive. He hasn't got the sensors on the outside of his body to feel the heat. And that's kind of like the toxic culture within policing. When you're in it, you don't recognize it until you've jumped out of the boiling water and then you realize you were boiling alive. And so I see, unfortunately, that what we have is very limited options as officers because you'll have you know, a group of five to 10 cops and they're sitting in the constable room and there's a member of the detachment that's homesick with mental health problems. And 
one one officer will say, ah, "F that person. They just need a vacation." Uh, you know what? That guy just needs a just needs extra time off. Looks like he needs another weekend away. You know, ah, uh, they're just lazy. They're tired of working. F them. And and I can go on and on. We've all heard it. Some of us, and I admit, I've participated in it. So, what are the choices? Here, here's what I think the choices are. A, you can participate so that you're included in the group, so that you can hope for certain things in your career to uh, flourish. B, you can remain neutral and do nothing, where you just sit and listen and don't participate. Or I guess the only other option is um, you speak out against the people that are doing this and or you approach your supervisor and you explain to them that this is what's going on. So then this is, these are, this is what's going to happen to you. If you participate in the belittling and the gaslighting and the pejorative language behind people's backs, you're complicit in this toxic workplace. If you're neutral and you're doing nothing, well, I'm not going to blame you. I mean, I don't necessarily think that that's the right course of action either. But I also know that for most police officers, they're not interested in challenging anybody who has a stronger personality. And then the third option, which is to speak out and approach your supervisor, that's just as bad as saying you're mentally unwell and you're leaving work. Because the moment that you speak out against an officer, you are labeled as a rat and you are ostracized from that group just as bad as if you fall victim to one of these mental health anguishes that we're speaking about today. So maybe not every detachment is like this, and most police officers are not like this, but there is a select group of individuals who have this alpha-type sense about them, this really strong, egoic, narcissistic personality, and they kind of spearhead this. And... Uh, it's really difficult to get out of and like the frog in the water. And I guess Anne and I can be examples of that. We finally got jumped out of the boiling pot and realized that we were boiling ourselves alive. And I really hope that there is a way that we can turn this around. And, and, you know, that's the million dollar question. And if one of us had the answer, I think we'd probably be celebrities and we'd be uh, held to a high standard and we'd be given a Nobel peace prize and, and things would be all better, you know? But uh, there is no simple answer because this has been going on for forever. You know, it's not like it just sprung up in the last 10 years. This has been a culture, uh, especially towards men, um, that you don't talk about your feelings. You don't say that you're hurt. You repress your emotions and you just show up and you do your job, no matter if you're going to die of a heart attack or a stroke or have a divorce. And uh, I just think that there's a better way to do this. That is our episode for this week. Part two of our conversation drops in two weeks' time, and all episodes are always available on our blog at oppa.ca slash media. If you like what you hear, please use the subscribe button on your podcast platform so you never miss an episode. For Scott Mills, I'm Josh Jutris, and from everyone here at the OPP Association, thanks for listening, and be safe. <laughs>